What number is this, Chip? Zilch 126, Monkeys 101, with the spooky episode, Monkey See, Monkey Die. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, like, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, man. You're listening to Zilch, a Monkeys podcast. Welcome back to Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. We want to thank you for listening today. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today. And today we are returning to Monkeys 101 with Dr. Sarah Clark and Dr. Roseanne Welsh. We hope that you have a happy and safe Halloween. And let's listen to Sarah and Roseanne talk about one of the first spooky monkeys episode that there ever was. Happy Halloween! <laughs> Class! Class! It's Monkeys 101! Here at Zilch, a Monkeys podcast, we're big fans of education. But as Zilch Nation grows, there's also a growing number of fans who don't know their Frodus from their Freeble Energizer, or who've forgotten the departure time for last train to Clarksville. There are even people in this world who can't solve the equation nine times blue. Oh, but have no fear, because doctors Roseanne Welch and Sarah Clark are here to help with their new series, Monkeys 101. Their regular class sessions and symposiums on special topics will explore all things monkeys, from the deeper meanings of the TV show and music we all know and love, to the cultural impact of the monkeys from 1966 all the way to the present. We'll even explore the monkeys' connections to history then and now. Stay tuned for a fun, thoughtful romp through the world of the monkeys. And who knows? At the end of the episode, you just might be thinking about the monkeys in a different, deeper way. Hi, everybody. This is Sarah Clark. Welcome back to Monkeys 101. Joining me today, as always, is the charming and delightful Dr. Roseanne Welch. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Or not see you, either way. Yeah, wonderful. Well, today we are talking about the second episode of The Monkeys, Monkey See, Monkey Die, uh, written by one of Roseanne's favorite writers, Treva Silverman, and directed by James Frawley. Yay, Lady Rider, yay. Lady Rider and James Frawley is two for two so far on directing credits. Hey, you guys! Let me in there or I'll break down the door! Play with words. (laughs) I am kicking you out! Hey, what's the matter? We paid the rent the 1st of September. Yeah, but that was for July! We open the episode at a moment of crisis when we meet Mr. Babbitt, who many have long theorized is not as mean as he's made out to be, but we'll revisit this in later episodes. Babbitt is the monkey's landlord, and he wants the rent. 
The guys don't have the rent. I guess they must have blown the cash they had renting that room at the Ritzwank Hotel last week to save Princess Bettina. But <laughs> I would think she'd like, you know, write them a check or just give them a spare crown jewel or something for foiling that coup. I, I don't know. Anyway, but I digress. Babbitt says he's sending a lawyer over with eviction papers. Once again, attempting to fool an authority fi- figure with clever disguises, they accidentally fool a lawyer, Oliver McGowan, who is not here with eviction papers, but is informing them about a potential inheritance from an eccentric millionaire, Mr. John Cunningham. One quick change involving a rather gratuitous removal of Davy's shirt later, it's time for a punchline and the opening credits. After the opening credits, the boys arrive at the sort of creepy mansion that would be owned by an eccentric millionaire who would mention a random L.A. garage band in his will. (laughs) (laughs) I like that garage band before actually the term garage band was termed. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering. I've always been meaning to look that up and never have. But yeah, you know, they weren't literally in their garage, though they had a garage. I don't know if they did. Do you ever see one? Well, yeah. When when um, Frank Zappa destroys the co- place, the car. Oh, that's right. And and Mickey's outside working on the car with Millie. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, anyway, <laughs> back to we digress. This episode. We digress. We're going to digress a lot in this, but you're just going to have to roll with it. Um, though, according to creepy butler ralph played by milton parsons apparently the band did return a wallet to mr cunningham with six hundred dollars in it which if you're curious comes out to about four thousand six hundred and fifty dollars in 2018 money wow yeah those really were clean cut all american boys weren't they (laughs) well except for davy but you know (laughs) The other inheritors are Madame Roselle, a scene-stealing psychic played by Leah Marmer, the globe-trotting author Harris Kingsley, Mark Harris, and Miss Ellie Reynolds, Stacy Maxwell, the grandniece of the deceased, and Davy's new love. I guess he was ready for a rebound already. Well, there we go. There you go. Get right back on that horse. Wait, that's another episode. Anyway. <laughs> Davy, Davy, uh, Davy, Davy. Uh, look, statistics uh, prove that two out of three teenage marriages end in divorce. Uh, three out of three. Four, uh, four out of three. <laughs> He's in love. Yeah, for the very first time today. Mr. Cunningham seems to have anticipated both the podcast revolution and the vinyl renaissance, and recorded his will on a record. The monkeys. What's inha- a record, Sarah? A record, like with vinyl and that you play. <laughs> <laughs> the folks here know what vital is. <laughs> thank mon- God somebody does. Thank God, yes. The monkeys inherit an organ on which they play Last Train to Clarksville, a song with no organ in it whatsoever. This, seems- <laughs> this, this bothered me even when I was like nine the first time I saw the episode. But anyway, Miss Ellie inherits the rest of the estate, provided she sleeps there for one night. 
Madame Roselle, Harris Kingsley, and Ralph the Butler inherit a serious case of the grumps and little else. (laughs) Because John Cunningham passed away during the foggy season, the fairy stopped running for the night earlier than usual, so everyone is stuck in the mansion till morning. After changing into pajamas they brought with them for some reason... Peter's bunny nightgown does rock, I, I will admit. <laughs> the guys bed down for the night, well, maybe for about 15 minutes. After some Scooby-Doo shenanigans in the hallway with the standard creepy sounds, Madame Roselle rushes into the hallway, predicting the death of the butler. Shots ring out, the guys run downstairs to find signs of a murder. There is no body. Mike tries to call the cops, but the phone line's been cut. Sherlock Dolan seems to be rather insistent that a knife was used, even though, as mentioned, gunshots rang out. Before Dr. Davy Watson could correct him, Ellie screams. No! What was that? A, uh, C-sharp. No! Ellie! No! Dining out in Greenland? No! Big spots along the Ganges? No! Philadelphia, where to find it? No! Okay, Kingsley, the chapter's over. (laughs) And the boys rescue her from Kingsley's insistent offerings of bedtime travelogues. (laughs) After Mike attempts to send a message on a non-carrier pigeon and a St. Bernard, the boys are once again waken up in the night by gunshots. Madame Roselle arrives with a slightly late portent of doom for Kingsley, and sure enough, apparently off-screen, they found another murder scene with no body. Mickey attempts to rewire the cut phone line into a radio to call for help and reach a submarine camp captain played by Vince Howard. Mickey desperately tries to get a message out. Laugh, will they? Are you getting something? I think so! Come on! Hello? Hello, hello? Hello? Yeah, yeah. Do you speak our language? Yes, I do. Thank goodness. Do you know how to send an SOS? Yes, I do. Wow, great! What's your location? Yes, I do. (laughs) It doesn't work. (laughs) So, of course, they do the only obvious thing anyone would do in this situation. They hold a seance! Madame Roselle braves some party line gags, ask your grandparents kids to try (laughs) to reach the spirit of john cunningham not either of the alleged murder victims whose bodies are nowhere to be found for those of you keeping track at home this is clue number 37 that something is fishy and then someone turned on the dark when mike lights a match and shines it on madame roselle's chair she's gone She's gone! Yes, guys, I just said that. (laughs) Got to the next morning with Ellie leaving and vowing never to return. However, the sky is lightening up outside, which indicates that she fulfilled the requirements of Mr. Cunningham's will, and with four witnesses to boot. In any case, after a romp to that just doesn't seem to be my day, to cheer up Ellie, replaced in reruns with a little bit me, a little bit you, we learn that Ralph Kingsley and Madame Roselle really should have waited a bit longer before celebrating their supposed victory over Ellie. Fortunately, though, Mickey has been experimenting with knockout pills. Why? That's scary when you think about it. Yeah. And Davy slips them all on Mickey. Get it? 
Ha ha. Ha ha. Little joke about that big. Peter guns them all down before they can do the same to him. Well, sort of, with his finger. And the police take the villains away after Davy nonchalantly admits to the inspector that they drugged the culprits with knockout drops. Wouldn't that have been assault in 1966, too? <laughs> well, guys against guys, maybe not. Yeah. Well, Madame Roselle. Oh, true. Yeah. After the police inspector congratulates the boys for drugging the culprits with knockout drops, we come to the end of the episode, Monkey See, Monkey Die, with a happy ending and a return to status quo ante for our heroes. The morals of today's story, if you are engaged in a plot to defraud somebody out of their inheritance, check your sherry for knockout drops. Also, please, for the love of all that's wholesome, don't use knockout drops on people. Get out your <laughs> smartphone like any civilized person and call the cops. Oh, and they were not a minute short. No, they were not. So there's no after show interview. Absolutely. Now that we've taken a look at the episode itself, it's time to turn to This Week in History. This episode first aired on uh, September 19th, 1966, and the 19th itself was a quiet day, uh, but Mike Burke was named president of the New York Yankees. The 20th saw NASA's launch of the U.S. Surveyor 2 Lunar Probe. On the 21st, the lead singer and guitarist of a future Monkees opening act changed the spelling of his first name from J-I-M-M-Y Hendrix to J-I-M-I Hendrix. The world was never the same. That's very cool. I never knew that. I didn't either. That's why I like doing this little bit. And <laughs> on the 22nd, NASA Lunar Probe Surveyor 2 malfunctioned and crashed into the surface of the moon. On the 24th, Hurricane Inez begins making landfall, eventually killing 293 people in the Caribbean, Florida, and Mexico. France also performs its first nuclear test on Funga Taufa Island, which is located between the Pitcairn Islands and French Polynesia in the southern Pacific, and thus not in the path of Hurricane Inez. And on the 25th, Dmitry Shostakovich's second cello concerto premieres in Moscow. So wow, that's that was, pretty cool. That was what was going on in the world in uh, the week the, that Monkey See, Monkey Die aired. And given that this is only our second session of Monkeys 101, we're, we're trying to be good scholars and we're experimenting a bit. After recording our take on Royal Flush, I kind of got the idea of checking out one of my favorite websites that you shall all know about, TV Tropes, to see if there were any entries for Monkey See, Monkey Die. And unsurprisingly, there were several. Uh, first off is the famous trope of, you know, the uh, the mystic with the crystal ball. The fortune teller is Madame Roselle in Monkey See, Monkey Die, has one at the seance, and another one that's just a snow globe. That's actually the first one that we see in the episode. Next up is a trope called Finger Poke of Doom, played within Monkey See, Monkey Die, when Peter seemingly knocks out the bad guys by shooting at them with his finger. They really just happened to pass out at the exact moment Peter did that from a drug drink, as we've already mentioned. And I should note that this is the on-screen debut of the game referred to by several of the guys as either Bang or Killer, which was a running joke throughout the behind-the-scenes history of the show. Whoever did the most over-the-top death scene when being shot, one. Apparently, one of the monkeys even tried to shoot James Frawley as he was accepting his Emmy. 
based on the video evidence he missed. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, another famous trope is the haunted house, which is featured both in Monkey See, Monkey Die. And we see another haunted house in Monstrous Monkey Mash. Instant Messenger Pigeon is parodied in Monkey See, Monkey Die. Uh, I was curious about this trope, so I looked up a little bit more about it. As useful as Pigeon Post proved to be during the Siege of Paris and the Franco-Prussian War, this method of communication possessed some considerable drawbacks. Firstly, and most importantly, Pigeon Post is only a one-way communication device. A homing pigeon's capacity to reliably deliver messages was entirely dependent upon its ability to locate its nest and and mate. Thus, the pigeons had to first be transported from their nesting location to the sender's location via slower-than-pigeon transit. Once released, the bird would fly straight to its home and not budge thereafter. For mutual conversation, both parties needed either several pigeons transported in the other's location to send home, or some means of retrieving them after sending a message. Homing pigeons were also prone to getting lost or eaten by predators during particularly difficult journeys, which necessitated (laughs) sending the same message with several pigeons, some or all of which could fall into the hands of a third party. Oh my god, the poor pigeons. I know. Apparently the Germans even trained falcons to intercept the pigeons during this aforementioned siege. Oh my god, don't even get me started on Nazi falcons. Oh god. In fiction, the delivery time is considerably shorter, and pigeons always get the messages through. (laughs) True. And then, of course, as pointed out, Monkey See, Monkey Die is a total riff on Scooby-Doo before (laughs) Scooby-Doo. So that means Scooby-Doo plagiarized the monkeys. Well, that would explain the cameo from Davy. Hmm, True, true. Very true. So that's essentially sort of the historical and cultural context of the episode itself. Were there any kind of interesting themes that jumped out at you? Well, you know, it's always fun looking at these with different perspectives. At the very end, when the police come to take care of the situation, we have an African-American plain clothes cop who is clearly the supervisor of a uniformed white man and the black character has the lines so he is getting paid more and doing a more important role than the uniformed cop who doesn't have any lines uh so of course i looked him up his name is vince howard and he ended up being a regular on emergency and two or three other shows he's still alive today um and performs and acts he's been around obviously a long time but this to me is one of the important things about the monkeys right at that moment of the civil rights movement their casting director and or their producers knew enough to want to include African-Americans in proper um, positions, in positions that are respectable and important and not to play on stereotypes. So that's a crazy, to me, a crazy important thing they did right. Yeah, absolutely. And this will not be the last time that we see uh, people of color in, uh, in, in just little spots here and there in the show, which is lovely to see, especially given the time period. Exactly. It's another reason the show has timeless legs. And um, because you mentioned the party line, which meant that two people in the neighborhood would share the same phone line. And uh, in my house, the phone would ring in twice. And that would mean it was my call. And across the street at the neighbors, they would get one ring. And that would mean the call was for them. But even if your neighbor picked up the phone and was holding a conversation, you could pick up your phone and hear their conversation because you Mm -hmm. shared the line. 
And um, then you'd have to pick it up and say, I need to call my friend. Please hang up your call. And they would do that or they wouldn't and you'd all be mad at each other. It's, and, and that was how phones, landlines worked for many, many years. In fact, I have a neighbor in my neighborhood who still has one. We're grandfathered in. I didn't even know those were still a thing. I didn't either, but apparently if you never turn it off, you can keep it all this time. And she shares it with her brothers who moved to a different house and she lives in the house that was her parents. But I digress. Wow. Um, when I heard it, when I noticed the shared party line and I noticed the fact that they were staying in the same bed a la living in a rooming house and when I thought about the fact that they couldn't pay the rent, I started thinking to myself, this is interesting overtones of of poverty and what it's like to come from not having very much, which they kind of play with throughout the run of the show. The boys never have money. But these are like things that happen to people who were impoverished during the Depression. Mm. And those things are in the minds of writers who came up and studied through the vaudeville, even though, of course, Treva is too young to have been in vaudeville. She's knows about it through her study of that style of comedy. Mm-hmm. So that kind of interested me that she would keep using those same things that, you know, again, a modern kid would barely know. But even in 1966 and 67, there weren't a lot of kids who understood what a rooming house was wow. in the way that um, there's that cute Nickelodeon show, Hey Arnold. Mm. And that is weirdly oxymoronic and strange because you have some kids, they lived like they lived in a boarding house, but in today's world. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's really interesting that there's that feeling of it. But the other thing that's really interesting about this episode is that um, because it's the first one after Royal Flush and Royal Flush has got a few differences, this one sets up a lot of stuff that we're going to see again and again. I mean, it opens on them playing music, rehearsing. So we're reminding the audience, hey, these guys are musicians. And, you know, we're trying to establish in the audience's mind the themes, the concept of this show. So right away, oh, yeah, they're musicians. Can't pay the rent. I totally get that. Um, you get from Treva, again, this vaudevillian bum bump We paid the rent for the 1st of September. Yeah, but that was for July, mm-hmm. right? Everything is a, you know, it's a, it's a setup and a punchline, a setup and a punchline. We could be in Max Sennett and Mabel Normand era of comedy, the mm-hmm. way that it's written. And that also has references back to this older time when people were more impoverished. So that kind of interested me. She's just a really good writer. As we've said, she's my favorite writer of the whole group um, because she sets up the conflict right away. We see that the young generations, and now we also have the hippie ideology, they're always being treated badly by the adults. It starts with Babbitt, and then it turns out the three adults they meet are there to scam them. Uh-huh. So that's a really interesting, and that repeats all the way through the series. Always, almost always, except in, I have a little song here. Yes. Um, then the older people are nice, and it's Mike who's helping them. They're being screwed by the middle-aged people. Uh So we find a pattern of middle-aged people, so parents can't be trusted, but grandparents and children, grandchildren, are trustable. And that's total hippie ideology. Yeah, and we're even going to see that again in the next episode, Monkey vs. Machine, with with Mr. Daggart and the uh, Kindly Adventure, so... Exactly. It's mm-hmm. it's a pattern that's set up right here. Um, and that's, again, something that she gets from older vaudevillian type type comedy and Yiddish theater kind of comedy, which mm. is part of what she knows of from her childhood. Right. This is also the first experience, even though Davy was in love with Princess Bettina, he never had stars in his eyes. This is the episode that sets that up. Mm-hmm. 
between him and Ellie, which is kind of cute. Um, so Treve is doing a lot of work here. He's getting a lot of things going, which I think is pretty cute. Um, I also think it's interesting they do the rock, paper, scissors thing, yeah. which Big Bang Theory echoes, but adds the modern twist of rock, paper, scissors, Spock. Yes. But our guys can't do that because there wasn't yet Spock, which I think is like, whoa, that's true. <laughs> You know, that's kind of funny. And then we also uh, always have some metatextuality, the breaking of the fourth wall when, um, you know, they're talking about uh, hearing the recording. I think it's interesting. Uh, Mike says, oh, that record will never sell. And then Mickey looks at him and says, maybe the flip side. And we know that Mike had many of his own songs on the flip side of their records. Yep. So that's a nice inside joke for people who understand that about them, even back in the day. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty cute. And when you mentioned the carrier pigeons, as soon as it doesn't work and he reads the sign that says, I'm not a carrier pigeon, Mike totally deadpans the camera. <laughs> Total dedication. And then yep. when Mickey's doing the thing of experimenting with the, the making the phone wires and fixing the new phone, they have the on screen. Did General Sarnoff really start like that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're playing all these things right down to when we start hearing ghosty voices at the seance, we hear the the riff from um, Scrooge from Christmas Carol. This is the ghost of Christmas past. Yes. So, you know, and that's totally. And and also what that represents to me in Treva's writing is she's writing for an intelligent, educated, well-read audience. Yeah. Because she riffs on Christmas Carol. Later, when Peter shoots all the guys, Davy says, this is like the last act of Hamlet. <laughs> so they're expecting, you know, people say it's a show for kids, but they're making references to things that 10-year-olds don't know. Yeah. And even 15-year-olds might not. This is so true. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, uh, and then in terms of, of course, I could talk about the writing forever, so I won't. <laughs> but I will notice that Treva got sole writing credits. And that makes a difference because... When you see one name, it means that person followed it all the way through and was not very well, very much rewritten. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you'll see the writer, like last episode was Peter Myerson and Gerald Gardner and Dee Caruso, right. eventually the showrunners. That means they wrote a couple of passes and made enough changes that the Writers Guild insisted their names be added. Oh. So Treva did her first script without enough rewrites to add other names. Hey. And I think that's very cool. I think that's, uh, for me, a happy thing. And yeah. I will say, when I interviewed her, the cute thing was she said at first she hated the romps because to her that meant that they would interrupt her beautiful comedy. <laughs> and then she saw a couple of them and she thought, oh, these are adorable. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that um, it's it's a pretty good episode to tell you. If you never saw a Monkeys episode, you would totally understand the concept behind the show if you saw this one. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you all the things, especially certainly the themes of the first season, all kind of the, you know, running, not plots per se, but sort of the the running themes gags. and the gags and the running gags that, that, that pop in throughout. So yeah. Exactly. And you can also tell it's early in the filming because in the romps, uh, the second one is you'll talk about the music, but in the second romp, you get a lot of them in the uh, monster costumes, which is new to that episode. The first one is reusing stock footage they use during the pilot of them at the, the amusement park and all that. They don't have a lot of footage to put in these things yet, and they're not taking the time to fill them. They haven't had the time yet. Right. And there actually is a little uh, footage from the pilots in the romps for this episode here and there, as well as uh, some things from the uh, Yardley's Black Label commercial, which, of course, yes. we 
I wouldn't have known of as a kid watching in the 80s, but, um, you know, we get to see now because a lot of those things are uh, on the Blu-ray box set or available on, you know, on various YouTube and things like that. And speaking of the music, we had... There you go. Speaking of the romps. Speaking of the romps, as if we plan these segues... Um, <laughs> We've got two songs in this episode, Last Train to Clarksville, and tomorrow's going to be another day. Boys and Hearts' Last Train to Clarksville is, well, Last Train to Clarksville, and it's their first single, their number one single, and it's not surprising that the Monkees' first single was given a prime showcase in the second episode of the series, and it also was never replaced in reruns. That they, they just kept that song where it was, as far as uh, the record shows. The instrumentals for this song were recorded in their entirety on July 25th, and Mickey recorded his vocals at an unknown session shortly thereafter. Personnel were Wayne Irwin on guitar, Gene Estes on tambourine, uh, Bobby Hart on tack piano and auto harp, Billy Lewis on drums, Jerry McGee on guitar, Louis Shelton on guitar playing that famous opening lick, and Larry Taylor on bass. Bobby Hart had some interesting things to say in Andrew Sandoval's Monkeys Day by Day about writing this song. Uh, he said, as I was pulling into my carport, I was punching the radio stations and I just heard the tail end of Paperback Rider for the first time. It had just been released by the Beatles and all I heard was the ending fade out part. I thought they were saying, take the last train to something. Then, of course, a couple of days later, I heard the whole song and realized it wasn't about a train. But I was inspired by that phrase and that melodic movement toward the seventh note of the chord. I said, well, since they didn't use it, it's the great start of something else. So <laughs> I just had it in the back of my mind. Then we were coming down to the end of producing the first Monkees album and needed another song or two. So I said I had this idea and Tommy and I got together and did it really quickly. There's a little town in northern Arizona I used to go through in the summers on the way to Oak Creek Canyon called Clarkdale. We were throwing out some names, and then when we got to Clarkdale, we stopped for a minute and thought that sounded pretty good. We thought maybe Clarksville would sound even a little better. We didn't know at the time that there is an Air Force base near the town of Clarksville, Tennessee, which would have fit the bill just fine. So that, I thought, was an interesting story sort of about the creative process and how those things kind of evolve. Oh, yeah. And um, other people said this before and whatnot, but it's it's a very, very the nuanced Vietnam War song, because if we think about the Air Force Base, it is a boy saying, come see me before I get shipped overseas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he comes as close to saying that in uh, in the song as you could probably get in a pop song in 1966. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, big points for all of them. Mm-hmm. And on a related note, I actually was at a solo show with Mickey back in 2015, and he told a story I'd never heard about, about the experience of recording this lead vocal and how kind of a famous bit of his performance came to be. Apparently in that bridge, the bit, there were lyrics there. And ah. Mickey, Mickey was like exhausted because apparently it was like <laughs> 9 p.m. He'd been recording all day. He was beat and he did it like three or four times. It's like, I'm not going to get this. And then they were like, just, you know, do nonsense, nonsense <laughs> syllables all, uh, over that bit. And so he did. And they kept it. And I the rest it. is history. I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> the second song in Monkey See, Monkey Die was Tomorrow's Gonna Be Another Day, recorded on the 23rd and 26th of July, 1966, and was written by Tommy Boyce and his pre-Bobby Hart partner, Steve Vinay. I don't know if I could get with Dolan's Jones, Boyce, and Vinay. Yeah, I'm not feeling that one either, but. Uh, personnel, Mickey Dolan's vocal, of course, Jerry McGee, electric guitar and harmonica, Wayne Irwin and Louis Shelton again on electric guitars, Larry Taylor on bass, Billy Lewis on drums, Tommy Boyce on acoustic guitar, and uh, somebody unknown on tambourine and hand claps. And of course, as we all know, this was an album track on the Monkey's first album, so that sort of explains why that one was there. Mm-hmm. But... Well, I was actually thumbing through that that section of Monkeys Day by Day to look at um, the recording info for those two songs. I discovered on the twenty sixth, uh, July twenty sixth, the 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 same day of the second recording session for tomorrow's going to be another day. I also discovered that Boyce and Hart recorded instrumentals for Whatever's Right. This Ooh. song was of obscurity, never released, pretty much forgotten until March 2016, when it was <laughs> re-recorded for a little album you might have heard of called Good Times. <laughs> and, Which are and, very good times indeed. Yes, excellent times. Some of the best times of my life, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. But now I'm wondering, I'm not. I, I'm going to like have to dig through day by day and, and, and talk to some of my friends who are more steeped in the album trivia than I am. I, I really think that might be the largest gap between a first take and a final take of a released Monkeys recording. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Certainly got Lady's Baby beat. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. So, so yeah, those were the songs, and I think I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Again, kind of like the last episode, why they were in there. We we're talking about the first single, which was gearing up to be released. This was the second episode, so hopefully, everybody who saw the episode last week told all their friends how awesome the monkeys were, and so they might have a bigger viewership this second week, so it would be a good day to roll it out. And as mentioned, Tomorrow's Gonna Be Another Day was an album track as well, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, we talked about Don Kirshner, and he has his problems, but he was good at what he did in the beginning and getting it all launched. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was a smooth operation. And and, and looking for, looking at it from this angle, you can definitely see the synergy and kind of the germ of this idea of timing the, you know, the TV with the with the music and eventually with concerts. And, uh, you know, I think it's safe to say it succeeded beyond anybody's wildest dreams. (laughs) Well, going strong 50 years later, it's like Doctor Who. That's pretty good success. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's up there with Doctor Who. Yeah. So any other thoughts about these songs or about the episode? I have one last thing to throw out there for all the Peter girls in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. When I interviewed Treva, of course, my last question was, and if you were to choose one of the monkeys, and she did not date any of them, um, who would it have been? And she thought for a while, which I thought was very interesting. And then she said, I have to tell you, to me, the most attractive of all of them was Peter. Mm-hmm. So she's a Peter girl at heart. I can see that. I can totally see that. And, and Treva, I, I've loved over the years watching your episodes and discussing your episodes. And, you know, if you're ever interested, the microphone's open. Ooh, yay. <laughs> 
Okay, so that's it for Monkey See, Monkey Die. In our uh, next episode of Monkeys 101, we'll be discussing Monkey versus Machine, which, speaking of Peter, this is apparently his favorite episode of the whole series. And until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll take you back to the show. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Roseanne Welch is a Mickey girl and the author of Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers, Television, and American Pop Culture. After a career of writing for television shows like Touched by an Angel, Picket Fences, and Beverly Hills 90210, Roseanne shifted gears and went into education. She now writes on film and television studies and teaches in the screenwriting program at Stevens College. Dr. Sarah Clark is an April conquest and proud of it. When not podcasting here at Zilch, a monkey's podcast, or writing at her blog, Fandom Lenses, her not terribly secret identity, she can be found leading a university library in the Philadelphia area. Sarah is convinced that her utter inability to understand Head when she was 11 sparked the intellectual curiosity that led her into academia. If only she'd known the guys themselves didn't understand Head either. Thank you, Dr. Roseanne Welsh and Dr. Sarah Clark for that. It's always great to monkey around with them and everybody else here at Zilch. Again, we hope everybody has a happy and safe Halloween. And here's something we did last year, and we're putting it in this episode as well. It's... Here comes the monsters. So enjoy, have a happy and safe Halloween. Be good to one another. See you on the next episode of Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. <laughs> Here we come, hunting down this thing. We get the scariest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monsters. And people say we monster around. But we're too busy scaring to put anybody down. We go wherever we want to. Hunt who we like to do. The only time the wolfman is restless is when there's a full moon. Hey, hey, we're the monsters, and people say we monster around, but we're too busy scaring to put anybody down. We're just trying to be scary, come and watch us haunt and play. We're the monster generation, and we've got something to say. Ooh. Ooh. Anytime. Or anywhere. Just look over your shoulder. A monster might be standing there. Hey, hey, we're the monsters. And people say we monster around. But we're too busy scaring to put anybody down. Ah, one time. Ha 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 ha. Two time. Ha 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 ha. Three times. <laughs> Come here, I want to bite your neck. Why, are you thirsty? No, I just want to see if your neck breaks. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs>
Hey, hey, we're the monsters. And people say we monster around. But we're too busy scaring to put anybody down. Ooh, we're the monsters. Yes, you know we're the monsters. Ow! And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.